One of the songs we sang earlier, I mentioned it was an older song, and every time I hear of it, I think of a river. Not a rapidly flowing, rushing kind of river, but I think of something more like the Columbia, that, that looks like on the surface that it's quite a slow-moving river, but the billions of gallons of water that are moving through there, that it might run slow, but it runs wide and it runs deep. And I think of the, the power that is there in that deep, deep love of Jesus. And yet it is, it is so peaceful. Yet life isn't always like that, is it? Life sometimes is not so peaceful and gently flowing, moving, carrying along. Sometimes it is very rough and rapid, and you feel like you're being smashed this way and that way against this rock and that bump, or maybe it feels so dry that you wish there could be water again. We hiked upon some places where you could tell that in the times of snow, snow melt that there were, there were rocks down a canyon and, and, and that the water would just tear through there. But right now, it's completely dry, not a drop. Maybe that's what life feels like right now. Um, not that peaceful, deep-flowing river that... I imagine in my mind when we sing that line. The um, life needs that peace. I titled the, the passage that we're going to look at this morning in James chapter 3, I titled it Planting Peace. And I pulled these words right out of the text itself. Planting peace in a conflicted culture. Because right now, our culture, where we live, our society, the, the, the people around us, and not merely here, but, but all around the country, there's a lot of conflict. Sometimes it boils over, sometimes it's below the surface, but it's, it's hard sometimes to have a conversation without it swerving into a direction where you feel like, uh-oh, I better be careful here. And if you're like me, you're not always so careful first before you say things, then it can get awkward quickly. How is it that we can discuss these kinds of things? How is it that we can talk about things of peace in a conflicted culture? How is it that we perhaps can be agents of peace, that we can be messengers of peace, that we can actually plant or spread peace, increase peace, and that peace that we know, peace, peace with God, in the midst of a culture that is in such conflict. How can we do that? James, James gives us some very, very wise direction here, wise counsel. And remember, he's doing this to a church. He's doing this for a church that is uh, mainly Jewish Christians, people from the Jewish background who have been scattered around the world. They, they, um, from the time of the first captivity, they have been scattered about. And uh, they are in the midst of other cultures, and yet often they would live in their own little Jewish world. And the word has come to them concerning Christ. Or when they came to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage, for one of the festivals, and they heard Peter preach there about Jesus, the Messiah, who died for our sins and who rose from the dead, and they, they took that message back home with them and told others. And within those Jewish enclaves, now there are Christians. And yet they're not received by their own Jewish friends and family any longer because now they name the name of Christ. And they're not embraced by the broader culture, which is a very ungodly and pagan and idolatrous culture following idols that they don't know where they fit. They don't know how it is that they can relate 
to people around them. And James is giving them some counsel that will be good for them as they seek to live out the glory of God in the midst of people around them. And how is it that they, they could share this good news that they have now embraced in their heart? How could they plant that peace among a conflicted culture? It's a, it's a political season. It's a silly season. You can tell about this time of year, every couple of years, there's something in the air and it goes into the ground and along with the rain, these signs pop up and they're all over the place. It's like weeds. Well, they are. And, and it's, it's on the news and it's on TV and, and uh, we have a brief break during the Olympics, but it'll be back, trust me. And people will be talking about, this person said this or they said that or I think this and... and Oh, you feel like you're tiptoeing. Well, some of you aren't. Some of you are just wading right in, uh, stomping even. How, how in this environment? I, I want to actually take a chance here. I'm going to talk a little bit about politics or try to relate this to some political themes as we go. So put your seatbelt on. Brace yourself for that. But first, let me just say that if in terms of this culture and how we plant, there are two ways to live, all right? There are two ways to live. I'm going to read the whole passage, or or rather I'll read the first part of it, verses 13 to 16. You'll find us on page 1012 if you're using the Pew Bible. Um, Verses 13 to 16 of James chapter 3. And I want you to look for, as we read, two different ways to live, two worldviews, one of which directs us one way or another. Verse 13 of James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There's way number one. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, which is unruliness, uproar, even anarchy, and every vile or immoral practice. So so James is telling us to live out of the, one of the ways to live is this, to live in this meekness of wisdom. And James is telling us to live out the meekness of wisdom which adorns or promotes the gospel, adorns the gospel, to use somebody else's words, Peter's words, and to, to rather than that which is false to the truth or which is contrary to the gospel. To live out of the meekness of wisdom. What we believe, he says, is shown by what we do. Let us show it in our conduct. Well, that's nothing new. James has already said that, hasn't he? He told us that in chapter 2. He told us already that that our, our faith, what we believe, is actually evidenced by what we're doing. So what we're doing is telling us something about what it is that we're really believing. You say, well, I don't live a perfect life, so what does that mean about some of the things I do some of the time? Well, some of the time you're, you're forgetting what you need to be remembering. You're forgetting what you need to be believing, and you're believing a lie instead. And that pushes us off in a different direction, and we're, we're, we're fending for ourselves maybe, or we, or we feel like we need to stand up for ourselves, forgetting that God will vindicate me. I don't need to defend myself. So it's not, it's not new to us that what we believe is seen in what we do. The, what's new to us here is, is this, uh, the way to do that is in the meekness of wisdom. 
We learned in chapter 3 earlier, the last, last week, that, that what we do is also including what we say. And what James is going to flesh out even a little bit more, not only what we say, I'm speaking the truth, this is right, but how we say it. What Paul does so well with that little phrase, he says, speak the truth in love. And actually, he doesn't say speak the truth in love. Literally in the Greek, it is truthing in love. And I like that because it, it, it could refer to our lives and our conduct, our behavior, as well as our words. All of that together, truthing. Uh, conduct and words that agree with, promote, adorn the gospel, rather than are contrary to it. This meekness of wisdom is a great way to apply what James said in chapter 1, be quick to hear and slower to speak. Speaking out of understanding of what you've heard and how that relates to what you know and want to bring into the conversation. He says there's a wisdom from above. That's interesting. That's worth thinking about, talking about for a moment. There's a wisdom which is from above, and there's a wisdom that is not from above. He contrasts the two. This, this meekness of wisdom is the wisdom from above, and there's another way that's driven by jealousy and envy and striving that is from, well, it's not from above. I'll start there first. There's a wisdom that's from above. It assumes there is a spiritual realm. It assumes that God is on his throne in heaven. And thus, somehow, all will be well with the earth. That God is on his throne. It assumes that heaven is real. There is a spiritual reality, a spiritual realm that has creation as its foundation, that God made this. Catch this phrase. This wisdom from above assumes that, that create, there's a spiritual realm that has creation as its foundation and the, the fall as its apologetic. What do I mean by that? Creation as its foundation. God made this. We are accountable to him. That's foundational. Everything else, the things that I decide, the things I try to figure out, what's right or wrong in society, it relates to God and his creation and what man's role is in that. Man was created, humanity was created in the image of God to represent God to the rest of creation. And so we take care of creation because of that. We are God's agents for creation. All of that comes out of God made this. It's his, and he has put it into our trust, okay? And the fall is it's apologetic. See, everything's wrong. You say, well, well, if God is a, such a good and loving God, then, then why does he allow this or that to happen? Well, the way you get the wrong answer is you ask the wrong question. Maybe the question ought to be turned just a little bit to simply why are these things happening? It's broken, See, your, your mind, by asking the question, is understanding it isn't supposed to be like this. The fall, the brokenness, is the apologetic. It tells us that something is wrong. God allows us in the fall, when Adam went his own way, he then said, okay, Adam, this is how it's going to be. From the, from the sweat of your brow now, it's not going to be wonderful, enjoyable, tending the garden and look at the flowers grow. Now, it's not going to be so easy. There's going to be something wrong with the soil. It's from hard work that you're going to fight back the thorns and, and get enough bread to eat. It's going to be difficult. There will be hardship because it is broken. And you are going to now experience good and evil. You're going to know the difference by also knowing evil. 
The fall is its apologetic because the fall tells us, shows us the brokenness, it shows us what's wrong, and our hearts cry out in agreement to that. It isn't supposed to be like this. So in the middle of the ache, in the middle of the hurt, it reminds you that God never intended for it to be like this. I remember a time, Julie and I were fairly newly married. We had moved from Washington. In the, we were in the Air Force at the time. I was in the Air Force. We moved to Mississippi. Got to know a family there, a family with, goodness, they had eight kids. What were they thinking? Eight kids. They were, they were much more uh, patient, obviously, and wise than I was as a parent. We, we could only handle four, and I'm not sure how we did with those. I thought, you know. The... Um, but this family was a great help to us, and uh, we, we, we watched how they related to one another. We watched how they related to their kids, and, and uh, uh, they made such an impression on us. We learned this, this whole thing about homeschooling from that family among, a, among one or two others. And, and, uh, but another friend right next door to them lived another family, young couple, because their friendship with this family as well, they brought them under their wing. Another young couple, they had their first little baby. They brought this family, this couple to church with them. They, they took their first baby steps themselves in faith in Christ. And then six months old, that little baby was, was laid on a bed and was just learning to roll over and got between the side of the bed and the wall and suffocated. A terrible thing. And yet, the ache of our hearts at the time taught us it isn't supposed to be like this. Death is the enemy. It's not, why did God allow this particular thing to happen as if life would be okay if this one thing hadn't happened? This one thing, that their six-month-old baby taught them and us something about our mortality, and about the ugliness of death, and about how it isn't supposed to be like this. And our own souls ached in agreement with that. Imagine, we think of a young child that we're, is going to be raised up, and we're going to teach it all that it needs to know. And uh, we had other friends. They, um, one of their children died while they were stationed overseas with sudden infant death syndrome. And it changed John, my friend. It changed him. And it didn't, it didn't ruin his faith. It, it, it planted an anchor in heaven for him that pulled him, in a sense, in a new direction. He, he, he started out after that. He wanted to just share something about his faith in Christ with everybody in, in his immediate neighborhood. And he did that. He went, he, he went door to door, meeting people, introducing himself to people and sharing his faith and in, the, in, the, in the midst of troubles. After that, he wanted, to, he wanted to, that whole side of town. And he had a map and he charted it out. And, and one by one, he visited people and he called on them. And he just, just very quick, sometimes short. But anyway, out of all of that, what it did for him, his little, little baby, his little child taught him something about the value of eternal versus the temporal. And to echo David's words, I can't bring that child back to me. He won't come back to me. I'll go to him one day. And his heart was, had a tie to heaven that it hadn't had before. It taught him something. The creation is that spiritual realm's foundation. God made all of this, and it's a, the fall is its apologetic. The brokenness also tells us there's a spiritual reality that is supposed to be different. And we, we, live out that difference in the midst of the fallenness. We live out peace 
in the midst of the conflict. That's what James is saying here. There's a wisdom from above that shows understanding in its works of meekness. We live it out. The things that get in the way are envy and self-interest. You see, there's an earthly conventional wisdom that is contrary to God's wisdom. Isn't it interesting that, that I expected, as I was reading through this, I expected that James was going to say, there's a wisdom that's from above, and there's a wisdom that's from below. There's a wisdom from heaven, and there's a wisdom from hell. He doesn't say that. He says there's a wisdom from above, and there's an earthly wisdom. Because you be careful what you believe. Be careful what you buy into. He says this earthly wisdom, this conventional wisdom, this, can I say it, common sense, might be demonic. It might be self-serving and driven by envy, bitter jealousy. It might be driven by putting myself first instead of others. Be careful of what seems like common sense, conventional wisdom. It might be just that, merely conventional instead of heavenly. How do I know what I've always been taught is actually right? I compare it to what God has said from heaven. This bitter jealousy, selfish ambition contradicts the truth. It produces a wisdom that creates boasting, disorder, and it says even every vile or immoral practice. I can't advance my own interests merely over others and be advancing the gospel. You see, Jesus had to yield his interests if he was going to advance ours. If he was going to lift us up in eternal life, he had to lay his life down. That's the way it worked. He could not advance his own interests. He could have stood there before Pilate and said, you know, I will show you who I really am and called those 10,000s of angels. And what a scene that would have been. Everybody would have known and nobody would have been saved. He laid down his interests in order to advance ours. I cannot advance my own interests and also advance the gospel because the gospel is contrary to the selfishness of my own interest, which is the essence of the fall. It was true with Adam. Adam wanted his own way. It was true with Lucifer before him. The devil first said, as, as, an, as one of the archangels, the highest of the angels, he said, I am going to set my throne on high. I am going to be like the most high. I am going to be God. As he puts himself first, he drags down God's creation. We cannot advance the gospel. We, can, we, we, we cannot advance the truth while we're contradicting it. You know, this is true then. Think about those Jewish believers that James is writing to us. Not unlike the book of Jonah. It's easy, to, it's easy to live in our own little enclave, in our own little world with our friends and those who agree with us. And, and watch out, political season, what happens? You see somebody else's Facebook post, like, they are crazy, what are they thinking? I don't want to hear that kind of stuff anymore. And you quietly, you know how you do the thing in Facebook where you can take them off and you don't see their stuff ever again. It's like they never existed. But they don't know. They don't know you're ignoring them. They don't know you have, you have uh, cut them off. You didn't formally unfriend them and send them a, you know, I'm done with you ever. You just don't ever hear from their posts again. Because they're not in your circle. They're not in your world. They're not seeing it from your point of view. And so the relationship is broken. Well, the Jewish people around the world lived in those kind of enclaves. The book of Jonah was written to a nation that was living like that. Remember, Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah didn't want to go and help because those people, those are bad people. 
I don't want to go among those people. Those are awful people. God, if you don't judge those people, if you spare those people, they're probably going to do bad things to Israel in the future. And they would. And yet God said, Jonah, go to those people and warn them of judgment is coming so that they have a chance to call upon me for mercy. Jonah didn't want to go. Yet God has a way of getting his way. So I'll warn you of that. God has a way of getting his way. He did with Jonah. He will with us one way or another. You know, in the first century, Christians within this culture of looking out for one another, Christians were known for seeing needs around them and meeting them. Christians were known for taking in little babies that nobody else wanted, babies that were left out to exposure to die. And the Christians would take them in and raise them of their own. It was one of the things about them that the leaders of their time could not understand. There needs to be more of that in us that the people around us and the leaders around us cannot understand, and yet they see the goodness of God in it and can't argue with it. Advancing one's own interest at the expense of or lack of concerns for other is the essence of the fall, as I've already described. Do we point out the faults of others because we want to feel better about ourselves? Or we want others to know that we're really smarter than that? So we can either easily kind of revel, kind of celebrate in somebody else's calamity that they ca- was caused out of their own stupidity, and look how that's working out for them, and somehow we feel better about our own cleverness in comparison. Do you resent others' success or good fortune? Do, do I expect some kind of enforced fairness because I deserve more than I've got? That's contrary to the gospel because grace tells me I don't deserve anything. And yet it also tells me that my Father will care for me, the lilies of the field, as he makes them beautiful, as he clothes them, as he feeds and cares for his creation. Will he not take care of you who are made in his own image? Yeah, he will. There are two ways to live. One of them advances the gospel. The other one advances me. And you know what? The people around me, they need the gospel more than they need me. They need the gospel somehow through me or from me, even as we pass that tray one to another. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. It's holy. It's untainted. Then it's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's teachable, persuadable. It's full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. It's it's impartial. It's not prejudice. It's not already decided here and doesn't listen to any other point of view. It's sincere. And a harvest of righteousness, don't we want that? Wouldn't we like to live in a righteous society where what is right, really right, according to God's standard, is kind of the norm that it's embraced? Oh, it's never perfect. We understand that. We don't live in a perfect world. But wouldn't it be nice if the world that we did live in or our corner of it was more righteous than it is now? Wouldn't you like that? Can we make any difference? You know, we can. This is one of the things that concerns me when when some believers have decided they're going to completely withdraw from the whole election process. We have a right and a privilege to participate 
And maybe the choices aren't what you wish they were, but we still have a right to have some influence and to participate, and somehow we need to. And it may be that that participation at some time needs to be a withdrawal. I cannot, in good conscience, vote for any of these. Okay, that's understandable as well. But how will we, how can we make a positive difference in some little way in the corner of this society that God has placed us in? How can we have this harvest of righteousness? James tells us it is sown or planted in peace by those who make peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Righteousness, a harvest of righteousness, and this might be a, a more righteous corner of the world, but perhaps it's, it's something even bigger than that. Perhaps it's a harvest of those who are righteous before God because they are like you, believers in Jesus, who have received his forgiveness and now have his union, his standing before the Father. What if that's the harvest of righteousness? How could that be sown? How could I do that in the midst of this? It's sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me apply that to some of the political discussions. Now, I don't want to persuade you to one party or another. It's not my purpose this morning, but I want to, I want to do this by way of example because it's actually a very interesting year that, that many Christians are trying to figure out, in this environment, what do I do? And, and there's a lot of talk going on, and there's a lot of angry exchanges back and forth as well. There's still a lot of divide that happens. And What does it look like when you have a political conversation with the supporter of a different party or a different candidate? It can be fun in the, in the, in the, uh, what, the preliminaries, the primaries as well, right? When you're more generally of a, of a same perspective, and yet you've got your candidate, and there's others out there, and none of them could ever nearly be anything like yours. We have some interesting conversations going on. If you, maybe it's not good to have a political discussion. Don't they say there's, there's certain things you shouldn't talk about, like politics and religion? Well, religion would probably include Jesus, and we're supposed to talk about that. And, and I kind of want to be talking about what people are talking about. But the trick is how. How do we talk about things like this? Could there be a way to, to, to give a broader view, to give a little bit of heavenly wisdom, a whole bigger and different picture out of some of these conversations? Is there a way? Maybe to identify legitimate concerns and shared interests in humanity. This wisdom from above is, first of all, holy. It's heaven first. Party and partisanship, no matter what side you're on, have a lower priority here. It's lower in the hierarchy. It's peaceable. Let me give you an example. I was, I was together with a family... Uh, a loved one in the family had just recently passed away. We were, we were together, we were talking and sharing it. One of the members in the extended family was uh, very different politically from, from, from the rest of the family. And he perceived probably because I was a pastor for me as well. And he was having a little fun baiting me, saying things, trying to draw me out, draw me into a conversation. And you know what? I went for it. 
I took it. And it wasn't that I was going to argue, but I like a good debate. I like the, the, the mental fencing of ideas. And this was not a profitable conversation. You know, he never, he never saw it right, you know, like my view. It didn't get anywhere. It wasn't helpful, and it wasn't helpful even in relation to the gospel, which in the midst of a family death was the need of the hour. This was not a time to be drawn into some kind of partisan political conversation. It'll probably happen again. Be patient with Bob, but I learned something there in my regret I learned something there, that, 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 that heavenly wisdom, everything else is on a lower priority. It's peaceable. It makes peace in the midst of troubled. It calms those waters in the midst of rapids. It's open to reason. It's teachable. It's persuadable. Many evangelical conservative Christians today, by evangelical conservative, I mean those that believe that the Bible really, literally is the Word of God. This is, this is inerrant, accurate, God's Word. God has revealed Himself this way. What the Bible says is true. Those kind of, of, of Christians typically today end up supporting one of the parties more than the other. It's the opposite party than they used to support. Did you know that most Christians a few decades ago used to support the Democratic Party instead of the Republican Party? And that was because the Democratic Party was the party that was much more interested, or it seemed like it, in the needs of the poor, the needs of the people that were being overlooked. And they were understood to be the mercy party. The Republican Party, by and large, was kind of considered lumped together, whether it was fair or unfair, as more of the business interest party. Well, some of those waters have gotten a little muddied over the years. Uh, somewhere around about the late 70s or certainly by the early 80s, a lot of the, the, uh, the evangelicals in the country were starting to migrate over to the Republican Party instead. And there are certain issues that are key for me, I'll tell you that, but I want to stand on those issues this morning. What I want to point out is, one of the things I, I do enjoy is if it can be a peaceable conversation with somebody who sees it different than me. There's a couple of men in this room, you probably will know who you are, and I'm not going to point you out, but, but who differ from me typically, generally, politically, and I've had some wonderful, enlightening conversations with you. And out of your life experiences, you have a sensitivity to another side of the coin that simply has not been my perspective. You haven't won me over. I would never go so far as to vote that way. And I'm going to tell you what way that is. That's not the point. But to be able to, my perspective is a little broader, a little, a little clearer, and I appreciate something more about how do we live out God's mandate in the midst of this mess, okay? There are certain issues that are always going to be key to me. They're life and death issues. I can't go. They are, they are foundational from creation issue. God made it this way. It's always been right, or that's always been wrong, and I can't move from that. I don't feel I'm able to. I'm not allowed to. And yet, I also understand that this bunch is not all right, and this bunch is not all wrong, okay? That's never the case either. And we need to keep that in mind as we have this conversation. Is there something, is there a shared interest in humanity 
Do you walk away from a conversation that involves politics as the person you're having the conversation with consider you now a, a passionate partisan or a passionate Christian? What do they remember from you as you leave that conversation? Let's take another heart, heart, um, hot-button issue. Uh, abortion in society today. When you're having that kind of a conversation with somebody, especially somebody who's of the different persuasion from you, do you leave that conversation? Perhaps you're, you're, you're very, very convinced in pro-life. You're very convinced that abortion is just wrong, must not happen. And you're having a conversation with somebody who believes that that, 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 that needs to be an, an available choice, at least in certain circumstances. And, and, but when you end that conversation, when you walk away, what is it that they remember about you? Do they remember you as an angry person on that issue? Or do they remember you as somebody who had genuine concern for both a child and a mother? What did they perceive from you in the midst of the conversation? Because the Lord Jesus has a genuine concern for the child and the mother. I'm quite, I'm quite sure, sure of that. Let me give you a couple examples from the life of Christ. When Jesus stood there before Pilate, and the crowd was baying for his blood, and Pilate in his pompousness, he says in his pride, you don't answer me? Don't you realize that I have the power to condemn you or the power to free you? And what does Jesus respond? Oh, man, if that was me and I was him, oh, that's why I'm not him, see. It's a whole problem. But Jesus says, you, you have no authority except that which has been given you from my Father in heaven. See, that's meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Jesus was not weak, but he had power. He had strength under control. And then, at that moment on the cross, when they're ridiculing him, when they're spitting upon him, when they're challenging him, if, if you're the Messiah, then come down from that cross. He says he saved others. He can't even save himself. And they mocked him and they ridiculed him. And what does he say? Father... Please forgive them. They know not what they do. There's the essence of the cross. There's the essence of our salvation right there. That one that I disagree with. I hope the case is that I can say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But at least part of the time, it'll also have to include, Father, forgive me. I know not what I say. We speak God's truth and yet with meekness, knowing that it is coming through an imperfect vessel. I will not always get it right. The bottom line, we seek a harvest of righteousness. We want that harvest of righteousness to be before God, not just in society, not just a veneer of behavior, but we want to be a genuine righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. That's what we want. And it's going to be sown in peace, not in conflict, not in pride, not in bitter jealousy or ambition, trying to push myself up in the view of others, trying to prove that I'm right. It'll never be sown that way. The, 
The gospel of peace is sown in peace by those who make peace. There are two ways to live. One of them is very near to us. One of them is all around us. In fact, we are swept up in its currents. And we'll find ourselves having to swim against those currents because the other is heaven. And it also is near to us. And yet it is far. It reaches all the way into eternity. And what God has given us the privilege, my brothers and sisters, is to be able to live in that, wit, in that wisdom already in a contrary world that doesn't get it. But let's, make them, let's help them scratch their heads a little bit, shall we? Let's help them to wonder, what is it with these Christians that even when we oppose them, they want to hear from us why? They want to share with us something about love and forgiveness, even if they would mock their God who they claim still loves us. Let's be so incomprehensible that they walk away thinking, who is this Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we do want peace. Lord, we, we rest in your peace ourselves. We need it desperately. We are a people in desperate need of a Savior. And Lord, we're surrounded by the same. Oh, sure, we see things very differently, one to another, in this room, not to mention beyond it. But, Father, we, we share one urgent need, and that is for forgiveness. That is for reconciliation with you. That is to walk with you in a contrary world. Lord, help us to pass that along. Like this tray this morning, Lord, would you help us to pass that from one person to the next, that they remember not my unclipped fingernails, or dirty hands, but rather they remember the redness of the cup, the unleaven of the bread, the beauty of Jesus in a broken world. Let them see that from us, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, Amen. Amen.